Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB, asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. This week, we are joined by Dr. John Aquaviva, author of Improving Your Body Image Through Catholic Teaching. John, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I am a professor of exercise science in the School of Sports Science at Wingate University. I've been teaching at the college level for a little over 20 years. I have a PhD in the area. I have written a couple books on body image, hence this conversation, and I'm always happy to share the connection between my field, exercise science, and taking care of the human body, and this series of writings called The Theology of the Body, written by John Paul II, and it really combines my couple loves, my field uh, in exercise science along with my faith, and it's a really good gelling of these two concepts. And that's why I'm happy to be here to share this information. Now, did you start researching body image after you started in the field of exercise science? I did, actually. In fact, in my early years as a professor at Roanoke College, that was my job at a four-year school prior to where I am now at Wingate University. When it hit me, so many of my students, 18 to 22 years old in general, and they shared anything from body image being a nuisance to them or downright body distortion. And it was an obsession to them because of our age difference between me and the student. And the fact that I was in this position of being a leader in the classroom and outside the classroom. And I always had a crucifix in my office. And I think, I think because of the combination of those issues, I think young women and some men felt safe to share their concerns about body distortion with me. And that's what eventually led me to write the books. I saw there was such a need. They were so interested in this topic that I felt the only way to really address this in a serious way was to include God in the conversation. And you mentioned this when you were talking about your experience with the students. Is there a difference in kind between body dissatisfaction and a genuine body image struggle? Or is it just a question of degrees of dissatisfaction? No, it's the latter part of what you just said. There, It's a spectrum of sorts, right? There are gotcha. varying degrees. Most research, survey research indicates that women suffer to some degree, some type of body dissatisfaction, about 70% of the population. And the younger that population is, the higher that number gets. So in other words, girls that are 15, Young ladies that are 20, 25 experience much greater body dissatisfaction than women that are in their 40s and 50s, even though a good percentage of that population does. Men, it's around 33%. About one third of the male population suffers from some body dissatisfaction. But in those two basic percentages that I shared, 70% and 33%, there's a degree of seriousness of their body dissatisfaction. And some people, it's minor, it's like a nuisance. And other people, As I mentioned earlier, it's a downright obsession and it keeps them from fully functioning, uh, at least the way that they would want. And those that are close to them see that affecting their everyday life as well. That's interesting, the discrepancy in the different age groups, because, you know, the narrative is you're always better looking when you're younger. And yet the younger people are those who experience this more strongly. The sense I get is that that has something to do with the standards that are prevalent in the culture and the expectations that are placed on young people to look a certain way. That's right. And of course, all that, not all that pressure, but a lot of that pressure is on young women, right? More of the ads on TV, more of the ads in magazines, commercials on YouTube and other social media outlets. They're geared uh, strongly toward women and young women. And men aren't cheated out of this either. There's a lot of ads toward them as well. But it always is aimed at the young person. And then the other thing that goes hand in hand with that, Andrew, is that we gain perspective. For instance, people in their 20s may or may not have a faith life, but people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, they're more likely to see things in perspective, whether they have a faith life or not. Hmm. But my guess would be that people in their 40s and 50s have a greater faith life than people do in their early 20s. And that is part of this, is it helps put things in perspective and helps give meaning to life. And if there's no meaning to life, meaning of life is shown through the lens of social media. What else do you gauge yourself by other than what we see and hear about in social media? And that is the most powerful tool in combating against body dissatisfaction in our culture today, without a doubt. It's hard to believe that 
God loves me, you know, no matter what I look like on a given day, if God is not a reality in your day-to-day life. That's right. And and so if, if there's no God in your life, if there's no real meaning through scripture and the writings of the Catholic faith in particular is what I draw upon a lot, your worth is what society claims it to be. And society is consistent about the following, that you have the most worth, you have the most dignity if you're young, if you are pretty, if you're in shape and you're hip with the clothes you wear or a combination of all those things. And none of those things have to do with God. Uh, The one thing that I would say that needs an explanation, though, is that the body responds to exercise and healthy living in a very positive way. The outcome of that is usually a healthier looking body and even a better looking body. And if that is one of the outcomes, I think that's fine. But it's not the goal, right? It's just, it's a nice effect, but it's a secondary effect. That's right. It's it's an effect. It's the impact of treating our bodies well. Yeah. And the motivation behind treating our bodies well is to take care of this wonderful gift. You know, Andrew, to go on a, a little further with this, my, my wife, a couple of years ago, made a great point on Christmas morning. We were going to get ready for family to come over, I think. And then a lot of the toys that they just got were sitting around, you know, near the Christmas tree. And we said, okay, guys, let's clean this up before our guests come for dinner. So this space is clear. And one of the children, I think she was like three years old at the time, she threw across the room this brand new toy into this basket that we had to keep toys. I remember my wife, Alicia, said, hey this was a gift to you. And we want to see you take care of these things. You just got this. And even if you didn't just get it, we want to see you respect the toy that grandma or grandpa gave you or that Santa gave you. And one of the ways that you respect something that somebody gave you is you take care of it. Mm -hmm. And we can extend that to the human body. It is not something that we perfect. Although that is what our culture tells us. And even products specifically kind of say, you can be perfect. Like your face can be perfect. Your body can be perfect. I guess objectively, that's possible. Some people go, gosh, he's beautiful, or he's the most handsome guy ever, or that's a beautiful body, whatever the case is. That's all fine. But that's not the purpose of the human body. The human body was clearly made to serve one another and to serve God. Once we start adopting that language, we start on the spectrum from a poor body image or a mediocre body image to a better or good body image. You mentioned that men and women are impacted differently in this area. Do you think those differences are due solely to social conventions and expectations? Or do you think there are intrinsic factors at work too? I think there are intrinsic factors as well. I think that this is a pie and there's a lot of pieces to that pie. Mm-hmm. Not being a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I wouldn't venture to say what percentage of that pie goes to intrinsic versus social mm-hmm. pressures that are on people. But I think there are intrinsic psychological patterns, for lack of a better term, that guide us down this path. To elaborate on more than that, I think it'd be kind of difficult for me to articulate that point. But I do agree with you that it's both intrinsic. It's the way that we are hormonally, physiologically, anatomically, but also we are psychologically different than one another. Now, are there absolutes in that? No, because there are some patterns of thought and there's some patterns of behavior that root in the mind that are, from a woman's standpoint, more like a guy. And there's stuff that some guys do that are more kind of intrinsic and natural to a woman. But generally speaking, I think there's some truth to that. And can body image struggles have a subsequent impact on loving relationships? Or do you think it's more common for it to be the other way around? Body image struggles are caused by pre-existing relationship wounds. It probably comes from both directions, but I think especially because of a couple factors, a couple that I've already probably each that I've already mentioned, at least touched on to a certain extent. But there's that old term that when we get into a relationship, especially when we get into marriage, that we bring baggage to that situation, right? Yeah. And if you combine years onto when you get married, like for instance, rather than being married at 20, being married at 30, there's a couple of things going on. You're bringing in more experiences that you have in life. But the other thing that you're bringing in is what is rooted in today's culture, and that is social media. Everybody knows the scene, everything from when you're waiting in line at the DMV to even people sitting together in a restaurant 
or people, couples sitting together on their couch, they're thumbing through their phone, right? And they're looking at Amazon, they're looking at their email. But of course, a lot of people look at images, either still photos of their friends through Instagram or Facebook, or they're looking at videos through TikTok and all these other methods of presenting videos. Mm -hmm. And when we see these videos, sometimes it is of something innocuous or something that's innocent, like this is a picture of the sunset as the sun was going down when I was visiting California last month, right? That's fine. But so many of these pictures are, of course, of people on vacation. They're in warm climate places. There's a lot of people in bathing suits. People post pictures of what they want to look like or who they want to look like or the dress they want to be in or the bikini they want to wear for that summer. And there's one major thing, Andrew, to be said about this whole thing about social media and the whole thing about magazines and movies and reality shows. And that is what's called the social comparison theory. Mm. And the social comparison theory states that there's like an innateness to our, our desire to compare ourselves to others. And research is crystal clear on the social comparison theory in that the more we look at images of other people, especially if they're young, they're pretty, they're in shape, they're tanned, they meet all these criteria. The more we look at those images, Andrew, the more we compare ourselves to those images. And so if we marry at say 30 or 35, we have a lot more years of comparing ourselves. And so when we enter that relationship, There's a feeling of, even though we may be still fit and beautiful and physically attractive, we bring in all of these things that say, I I think I'm a decent catch, but I'm not as good as these people that this gentleman has been looking at for years. That, of course, can be greatly damaging. We, We want to honor ourselves and we want that other person to honor us, both as a, an emotional individual, as a spiritual individual, but we also want them to honor us as a physical individual as well. And if yeah. we have these feelings of, I'm not going to be desired because I'm not perfect. I'm not going to be desired by this other person because I don't meet the criteria of these other social media outlets, then that's going to be damaging. There's, I think, a whole lot of that going on in relationships today is people just feel that they're inadequate. And no matter how much that person honors them, they always feel inadequate in that relationship. And therefore, there's a lack of true health in that relationship. And it keeps them from bonding because they always feel inadequate. And and on the reverse side, Andrew, it's vital to say that because the other person, the spouse, has also viewed those images over the years, sometimes it's they unfairly compare their wife their girlfriend, their husband, their boyfriend to those images. Yeah. That can be, of course, just as damaging if I don't respect you. And if I keep holding you to this level of perfection that is seemingly possible to get to. And of course, we all know it's not. No, that's uh, that's a lot to consider when being in a relationship with somebody for the sake of awareness of the other and awareness of the self too. When it comes to somebody who does experience a serious difficulty with body image, how can the Catholic vision of the human person help? Is it just introducing them to the stuff that we already talked about? To a degree, it's introducing them to a couple things and some of the stuff that we've already touched on. You know, one of the things I mentioned in the very first couple of minutes was the teachings of theology of the body. In fact, anybody who sees my book, the subtitle is How Theology of the Body and Other Church Teachings Can Transform Your Life. And as you know, and if anybody that is kind of like a veteran of Catholic teaching in particular, that if they know Theology of the Body by JP2, mm-hmm. that JP2's language centered around marriage to a great extent. The male physically is meant for the female physically and so forth. But there's something that could be kind of sifted out from that, that appeals to all people, whether they're in a relationship, whether they're in a marriage or not. And that is how I started this whole conversation, that this creation, the human body, is indeed the masterpiece of all of his creations. As the Psalms tell us, we are wonderfully made. And notice that the Psalm doesn't say we are perfectly made. It's just that we are wonderfully made. That's why it's so important to see ourselves through the lens of how God sees us and not through the lens of others. And even in particular, as I mentioned, social media, 
we are doing ourselves the biggest favor if we say to ourselves, we're not going to perfect it. We can improve it, but we cannot perfect it. And kind of resting in this language of theology of the body, that it's a great creation. And it's, just, it's meant fully to serve others and to serve God. And part of serving God is praising God. Think about it, Andrew. As Catholics, if we weren't allowed to kneel, that would take something away from honoring God during Mass, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. That's a part of our relationship with God. Yeah. That's right. And you've heard probably many people say this. They call it Catholic aerobics, right? (laughs) I remember thinking that when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you were to watch somebody go through a traditional Mass from beginning to end, but you go at, say, three times the speed, we, we stand, we sit, we kneel, we sit, we stand, we, right? We go through all these motions. But part of it is, is this is the way we are taught to honor and praise God. And if we couldn't do that with our bodies, then we probably would feel a little remiss. We would probably feel kind of like that time of worship is incomplete to a certain degree. This is one of the ways in which we should thank God that we have the ability to do that. We have the ability to praise God in this way. And think about like in raising children and in having friends, all the things that we do that we just take for granted. Hey, Andrew, let's go play some racquetball. The ability to do that, ability to recreate, ability to shake hands and hug a friend. These are all things that we should look up to God and say, thank you, God. And the more we wrap our head around these aspects of Thanksgiving, the less we're going to think of our body as something to perfect. And that something is to be compared to these models, as I talked about, that don't even exist. Right. And we need to kind of embrace that, not just accept it. We need to fully embrace that. Yeah. Other means that are not available if you want to live like a normal life or a life that is like prioritizing God or the love of God. You touched on worship and I was thinking especially of like Stations of the Cross and the solemn intercessions on Good Friday, uh, where people pretty routinely feel definite physical exertion by the end of those. It made me think about sacramental life specifically and how that necessarily involves bodily activity. Do you think that a sacramental life can make a difference for somebody with their struggles with body image? I do, for the two reasons I probably already at least touched on. One of them would be that when we have a relationship with God, even if it's a little one, Andrew, when I say a little one, people sometimes say, I have a prayer life. And and if you kind of corner them, and not through judgment, but if you were to corner them, they would say, I say one Hail Mary every morning, and that's my prayer life right? Or I say a little prayer at night to God, which is good. That's certainly a good start. But remember, every moment that we spend in conversing with God, it does two things. One, we are doing one of the most noble and sacred things that we can do as the human person, and that is thank or praise God, right? But the other thing that we do is that we receive his graces. When we have a prayer life, when we have a sac- a life that's full of the sacraments, then what that means is that we are open, our heart is open, our soul is open to the gifts of these sacraments. And what that does, it chisels away ultimately at this bad body image, this body dissatisfaction that we have. And that's why I said in the beginning, you show me somebody that's 40, I can't promise that they're going to be a faithful individual, a prayer-filled individual, a mass or church-going individual, But I would guarantee that the research says if you're 40, you're more likely to attend church than somebody who's 20. And the reason I mention that again is that the more time we spend with our Lord, the more time that we spend in prayer, in Thanksgiving, the less time we have to sulk about the fact that we're not perfect in a physical way. That's a great point. Turning to something that's related to body image, but not immediately part of what you study. Do you see any similarities between those who struggle with body image? to those who suffer from forms of gender discordance? I actually do see a difference. And and I've been thinking a whole lot more about body image issues than I have about gender discordance for obvious reason, right? It's Mm -hmm. I remember a a priest just recently said, we didn't even know what the word transgender meant 15 years ago. Most people, if not every person, especially in the world of psychology, would agree that they have a couple similarities. The one similarity that I think is obvious is that they're both psychological issues. You've probably heard this, Andrew, and let me go a little bit outside of the realm of those two issues, body image and the transgender community. And that is part of the way that people deal with body dissatisfaction is through eating disorders, right? Bulimia 
and anorexia are the two big ones that always come to mind and always kind of at the forefront of that conversation. And those are known in every textbook, every research article you read, it will call them psychological disorders. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're psychological because that person not only is often young, sometimes they're downright beautiful and they're quote, perfect in stature and in weight. In other words, according to like, say a body mass index chart or a height weight chart, they're going to be within that body weight. They should be at the height there or in, and other people could think them as objectively beautiful. And it shows that it's really a psychological thing. And that's where this extends, that issue extends into body image, as well as this gender discordance issue that I think most people, certainly the objective community will say that what all those have in common is that there's lack of some form of psychiatric health. There's some form of a distance from reality. There's something going on there that causes this distortion. It's in their mind. It's in their something with their upbringing. It could have been some traumatic or a series of traumatic events, but it's nothing that's going on actually physically. It's something that is a psychological issue. And all we have to do is talk about the level of suicide within the transgender community. And we all know that there's a disorder psychologically that causes you to even think that way. We cannot ignore that. And I think a part of the uh, certain communities do ignore that. And they think that it's just a matter of acceptance or it's other issues. But it's clear that they're, the one thing that they do have in common is that there is some type of psychological disorder. And the other thing is less nuanced than that because psychological disorders are so complex that even experts sometimes have a hard time getting to the bottom of those issues. But the one that is kind of more palpable is that there's dissatisfaction on who they are. That's really the point, right? When people have body dissatisfaction, and like I said, it's everything from slight anxiety to an obsession. And once it becomes an obsession, that's the whole thing. That's what that word means is, you cannot think of anything else. You cannot function normally because you're obsessed with making this change. And of course, in virtually every one of those people, Andrew, if you could magically click your fingers and physically make them who they want to be, they would find out immediately that their psychological health would not be improved at all. That's the whole thing about the bulimic and the anorexic. They think they're fat. And then when they look in the mirror, they see somebody that's a 200 pounder when reality, when they step on the scale, they might be as little as like 85 or 90 pounds. Obviously it's something in their head. It's not something in their vision. It's not something in any other aspect of the brain. This is a psychological issue. And it's one that needs, it needs to be seriously looked at. Now with the transgender issue, that's a far more serious issue than most people that deal with body dissatisfaction. Most people that deal with body dissatisfaction, we might just look in the mirror and go, yeah, I don't really like that part about me, or I wish I was taller, or, you know, I wish this, or I wish that, or she may say, I wish I had these physical traits and so forth. And that's pretty common. But further along it goes to that spectrum, the more damaging it is. And ultimately, you can't serve anybody. That's it. You have no recognition of God in your life. You have no recognition that you should be serving God and that you need to be serving other individuals. All of your thoughts and all of your actions are inward. And of course, that's a form of selfishness. And that has no place in the world of developing that relationship with God. What are some helpful ways to support a friend or family member who discloses their struggles with body image? That's a great question because rather than how can people help themselves, how can they help other people who have these issues? And just last week, Andrew, the director of youth ministry here in the Charlotte diocese randomly found out about me. And he said that one of his members of his community and his church struggled with body image. And he inquired about my book. And I immediately sent the book to, to this guy. I got her name, her address, and I sent her the book. And I think that's a good place to start. In other words, are all the answers, is her body image improved 200% since she got this book last month? Probably not. But the reason I bring that up is that if somebody is struggling, then there's a couple of things that the individual can encourage them to do. If you are a person of faith, if you're a person that has a prayer life, I think that would be a good place to start is to not only pray on this and to help God give you wisdom on this situation, but ask God to take this away, to take this obsession away from you and to gradually lead you out of this darkness into the light. And daily prayer, as I mentioned, it does two things. It brings you closer to God 
and it's time well spent, but it also time not spent looking on social media. It's a double win for that individual. On the other end of the spectrum, Andrew, some people would need counseling. I don't think there's any question. Thankfully, I think most of the people that suffer from body distortion, body dissatisfaction are on this side of the spectrum, meaning that it's usually just more of a nuisance or a regular thought rather than as an obsession. But for the people where it's an obsession and it's kind of grounding them and it's like having an albatross or cement shoes on their feet, those individuals probably, just like the bulimic and the anorexic, might want to seek a professional and Christian counselor. I would also think reading about the human body in scripture is helpful. There's a lot of references to the human body in scripture. Will this clarify it for everybody? No, but it will take people to scripture. It will take people to the Bible. And again, that takes people out of that world that they're living in where it's pretty dark. And I'll leave that question with the following, and this can't be overstated, brother. I would have that individual take a serious look at how much time they spend on social media. Mm -hmm. Because what I talked about, this social comparison theory, it is very real and it is very powerful. The more images we look at, in fact, virtually anybody could be vulnerable to this. If you ask me the holiest person on earth today, if you expose them to anything from TikTok videos to pornography to just reality shows in which there's beautiful people, I think the holiest person, anybody that you know that lives down the street that is really close with God and lives a holy life, they would be distracted by those images. And we have to really take a look at that. In other words, I don't really think you can have a good body image. And I mean this without limiting time on social media. That's a strong statement, but I couldn't, if anything I've said in this conversation, Andrew, I think that's probably as good as anything as I can say, as far as how can we lessen the darkness of body dissatisfaction? You're not the first uh, person we've had on, and we've talked about a wide range of subjects, but you're not the first person we've had on to note that uh, social media can have that kind of negative impact on somebody's life in a variety of areas. Yeah. I think uh, Instagram is one that I, that I always go to. I don't know why, because it's, it's far from the only one, but it just seems like, yeah, the, the most looking over the fence to see how green the neighbor's grass is. That's right. You know, there's one more thing I want to mention, which I, I didn't even, it took me a while to, to, to figure this out. But in this day of COVID, look how we're conversing right now. Mm -hmm. Three years ago, Andrew, we'd be doing this. I'd either come to DC and we'd do this live mm -hmm. or we would do it over the phone, right? Yeah. Or maybe via the radio wave, something like that. But now it's very common for people to have conversations, sometimes even five minute conversations on Zoom. Yeah. But what happens on Zoom? You generally see two pictures. You see a picture of the individual and you see a picture of you. And needless to say, Researchers have done, have collected data on this. How do people feel about themselves after Zoom meetings throughout the <laughs> It goes down. Yep. Because they, they're sitting there going, like, man, I think I'm one handsome dude until I got on all those Zoom meetings. I thought I was one pretty gal until I got on all those Zoom meetings. And it just makes you think of your imperfections. And who would doubt that? PSA, there is a way to hide self-view on Zoom. So if you just look up how to hide self-view on Zoom. You can figure out how to do that. It's, it's relatively easy. By the way, I thought so many times in the Zoom meeting how my hair could look much better. So yeah, <laughs> thank you for pointing that out. Well, great. I think we can leave it there. Again, the title of uh, your most recent book is Improving Your Body Image Through Catholic Teaching, How Theology of the Body and Other Church Writings Can Transform Your Life. John, where can people find you? I have a website called catholicbodyimage.com. You can read a little bit more about not only that book, but the other book I wrote for parents who have children who are suffering or may suffer from body image. That's another thing you can see on that website. But also, if you're interested in having me come speak at a conference, a men's group, a women's group, uh, I'm willing to do that. And you can find all that information out on catholicbodyimage.com. I'm a host of a show called Faith in Sport. It's where we merge virtue and morality and character with the world of sport. So if you're a sports fan and you're a faithful individual, you might have interest in this uh, show. It can be heard weekly on Carolina Catholic Radio, as well as on its syndicate, uh, Radio Maria. Great. And we'll have a link to the books, the radio site, and also your site uh, in our episode notes. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. All right. Thank you, John. 
and we are continuing with part two of our chat with Kara Bach about C.S. Lewis's novel The Great Divorce. If you want to go back and hear part one, check out episode 78, starting at 29 minutes and 47 seconds. Okay, next story, we meet a few other people that we're not going to talk too much about, like the conspiracy guy who's like QAnon and the the uh, the grumbler and the guy in the bowler hat who's just trying to take like apples back to the town and he can't because <laughs> they're too heavy. So he's like, okay, well, I'm not going to take a bunch. I'm just going to take one apple. Uh, I can't take the heavy one. I got to take the smallest one. And even then he, he like still can't do it because um, you just, these golden apples that you find in the valley are too heavy for a weak little ghost who's still attached to himself to carry back. The next couple that we want to focus on, Robert's wife and then Michael's mother. So Robert's wife, uh, Robert is around here somewhere, but we don't meet him. But his wife is one of the ghosts from the town. And she is, who is she arguing with? I think it's with her mother-in-law. With Robert's mother. That's right. Yeah, she's arguing with her mother-in-law, who's one of the spirits who's from heaven. And Robert's wife has really made a project of Robert during their earthly lives. (laughs) She talks for a while about all the work she put into making him better and making him more hardworking. And she like never stopped. She was always busy trying to push him to take on more responsibilities at work or this or that. And to be fair, I kind of felt like as a guy who is prone to sloth, I could see myself driving somebody to become her because don't be too hard on yourself man (laughs) (laughs) i'm not i'm not she's not justified right but you know you you do still got to pay the bills and you got to support your family (laughs) so like this is an extreme of a good attitude but it's definitely an extreme as goodbread was alluding to i mean her story is basically this plot line of on the one hand pushing him to quote unquote like be his best self but you see through the telling of her story that her motives are never pure. Yeah. It's never actually oriented towards him. It's because, well, I couldn't have him hanging out with his old friends because, you know, they're kind of slumming it. They're like not the right kind of company. So we need to be associating with the right kind of people, which means that you have to have a better job and we need more money so that we can then buy a better house, which I'm doing for you because it's better for your career. I spent my time arranging flowers because you have to make this piddly little home look nicer. Yes, I'm sure that was really the thing that was most pressing upon your time. She's definitely a social ladder climber, we'll say. Sort of putting it on her husband as if like this was a great burden for me to make sure that he climbed the ladder for us. So the struggle for her that her spirit guide confronts her with like she knows robert is around here but can't see him and because he literally can't see her because she's not substantial enough she's just a wispy ghost so the mother-in-law has been sent who kind of still can see her to help her out i don't know if we should mention here so it, it does sort of become revealed i think a little later in the book that all of the people who are coming to meet the ghosts have some kind of like special training in heaven. Like they have been specifically allowed to come back. Yeah. And that there are a lot more people who are in the beatific vision who could not see them, would not be able to make the journey into the valley because that is not their particular role. So these are kind of special guides that have been trained in a way. So this guide, I think her name is Hilda, is talking to the ghost of Robert's wife. And she has to make a choice. Either let go of this controlling attitude you have towards the world, but especially towards your husband. And if you do, you're allowed to go see him. And she just can't let go of it. She says, if I'm given a free hand, I'll take charge of him again. I will take up my burden once more, but I must have a free hand. With all the time one would have here, I believe I could still make something of him somewhere quiet to ourselves. Wouldn't that be a good plan? And then a little bit later, I love this this quote. It's so illustrative. I must have someone to to do things to. (laughs) I mean, I think the reason why Lewis spends time on this story is it does seem to be a very common let's say, pitfall for a certain kind of woman. I mean, there's certainly men who make projects of their wives as well. So 
Yeah, I think we, like we've heard stories of, like guys who tell their tell their girlfriends or their wives, probably their girlfriends more than their wives, like you should wear makeup, you should grow your hair out, you know, you should wear dresses or something like that. Yeah. You know, that kind of along that that's probably the more stereotypical way that that gets played out for men. Anyway, he's pointing out like a very real idea that and part of one of the reasons why we want to talk about it on this kind of podcast is the twisted way that the relationship gets formed together you know really it's kind of abusive and you know in the end he the husband is basically suffering from depression and she's like oh I told him to go back to his writing at that point because he seemed he seemed like he was really depressed and like it was too late for him to like ruin our lives by doing some of his his own writing yeah I think that there is this real temptation to find others faults and to your point about you might be the kind of person who needs someone to give you a kick in the pants. You know, I think that on the one hand, when you become married, you are in it together and you're supposed to be helping each other get to heaven. And therefore, you know, if he, let's say he was suffering from sloth, there's certainly a role for your spouse to sort of help you overcome that sin. Yeah. But in this way, it's easy to see how twisted it can become where you become so focused on the other person and not, not at all on yourself and on the things that you should be doing to help you improve and get into heaven. I think that's a real spiritual danger for a lot of couples. Which is also the danger for our next victim, <laughs> <laughs> Pam, Michael's mother. So Pam, this is definitely the hardest vignette in the book, where this is a woman who's a ghost who's talking to a sibling of hers. And this woman lost her son at some point during her earthly life. But it's revealed through their conversation that Pam, the mother, even before anything happened to her son, had this inordinate attachment to him, that she was smothering him. He was everything to her. She apparently neglected her daughter and her husband because she was just holding on to Michael, her son, so tightly. She was like the original helicopter parent. And she is just demanding to see him this whole time. And she is not open to hearing any reason for delay or separation. The really challenging part is where her spirit poses a choice to her. You can see him, but only if you let go of seeing him. If you are obsessed with seeing him, then you won't be in the right place. You won't be physically able in this world to get to him. So for her, it's paradoxical because of this idol she's set up in her heart of her son. And really, it's not her son. It's just her version of being a mother to him, which she calls loving. And, you know, towards the end, she says, well, I believe in a religion of love and you're keeping me from my son. And what she's ignoring is her son's fine. Her son is not dead. Her son has died and now lives. Nothing she's doing is going to help him. Um, but she's not ignoring that. She's focusing just on the feeling of being a mother who has a grip on her son. Yeah. So this is a long discussion that the ghost and the spirit have and I think that's really, it draws out, on the one hand, the feelings that a parent can have of being self-sacrificial mm -hmm. um, and the way in which that can be twisted. And I mean, also Lewis goes into a further discussion about this woman later between the narrator and his spirit guide, who is giving him more insight into what's actually going on. And because I think it, this one is so particularly difficult yeah. that... You know, a parent, of course, has a very particular undying love for their child. Um, and so the fact that he's spending time pointing out the way in which that love can actually be not truly loving, but manipulative, I think is certainly something to to meditate on. So you mentioned, Goodbye, that he points out that, like, she basically, like, ignores her husband and her daughter uh, because it becomes clear that her son died at a young-ish age. Yeah. And so she becomes obsessed with sort of maintaining the spirit of him and basically like ignores everybody else. So, you know, she's obsessed with being a mom to the lost son, but apparently doesn't really care about being a mom to her daughter who's still alive and still there. And I feel like it's really challenging. You know, I think that as somebody who is about to become a parent, I mean, technically I am a parent, I'm pregnant, but you know, <laughs> there will be somebody outside of my body to take care of soon. I, I mean, I've talked to plenty of friends about the idea of your role as a parent and that relationship, you know, you're there to, you know, help the child become 
what God wants them to be and, you know, to teach them who God is and his love. And I, I think that there can be so much like wrapped up in so many people's, you know, hopes and dreams for their kids that they forget that the kid is its own person and that you are your own person. You're not like just a parent. And I feel like that's another piece of what Lewis is getting at. You have to have a relationship with God that is not just the identities that you have. Right. And her identity is so bound up with this feeling of love that she ignores the act of love, which is to will the good of her son. And the good of her son has been accomplished. He's with God. He he possesses the good. It's also very interesting because she starts demanding that her sister, I think it's her sister that she's talking to. She starts demanding that that her sister give her her son so that she can take him back with her down to hell, which is, <laughs> he's really like making his point. Okay, we get it. She's obviously being very selfish, but it is an interesting illustration of just the fact that like to her, it's about them being together, but it's again, love that is inward looking rather than outward looking. Right. I will be happy if I'm with my son, which is a very interior looking view as opposed to what would make us both truly happier, what would make him flourish would be to be in heaven, obviously. <laughs> um, and so you said, you know, it's that paradox of like, if she could only let go of the need to be with her son, she could actually enter into a relationship where she could be with her son. Right. But she can't be with her son this way, because this yeah. way she thinks it's like owed to her as her right by nature. Yeah. And her son's not her right by nature. It's, her son's a gift from God, and she's not willing to see him as a gift. So for all of the people we've met up to this point, their stories either end with them going back to the town and turning away from heaven, or ambiguously, you're not sure how it's going to turn out, sort of like the rich young man in the gospel. You don't see how they end up. With the next story, the guy with the lizard, you see how he ends up. You see that he has a destiny in heaven. And this is a guy, they're pretty clear. The last thing they talk about before this story is lust, and they talk about lust like right after it, that this is an allegory for somebody struggling with lust. And the reason that they're talking about lust is to show the difference between base sins and like higher, more spiritual sins, like the one the mother was experiencing, which are way harder to deal with, way harder of an obstacle to overcome. Whereas this lust story, the reason it ends happily is because the ghost who suffers from lust and his spirit are pretty well able to overcome it because it's like it's a serious sin, but it's not as serious as the other ones. Mm -hmm. So it, it helps as kind of a contrast to this more serious stuff to show like which sins can be overcome more easily than others. Yeah, I think the other sort of point that the lizard illustrates, so it's a spirit and he's got this little like lizard devil on his shoulder, sort of, you know, a very, very classical, like little evil person whispering things in your ear yeah. illustration. And an angel actually comes and says, do you want me to kill the lizard? If you kill it, it's all over. It's like pretty easy. And the guy struggles with it a little bit, but ultimately is like, yes, 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 kill it. And one of the things I think is interesting that Lewis is illustrating here is, so as soon as the angel kills the lizard, the lizard becomes this like grand steed. And then the ghost becomes a really beautiful spirit. And it's interesting because it's really the only transformation that we see mm -hmm. here of somebody choosing to enter into the journey of the valley. It's the simplest sin to overcome. And it still is saying, like, look how resplendent this person who overcomes a rather simple sin. So even though it's not made very explicit, it does seem to indicate that these other people who have somewhat more difficult sins to overcome, like just how much more great will their glory be right. if they choose to, to journey through the valley? Right, exactly. We've dealt with some more difficult sins and some less difficult sins, which brings us to our last case, the case of a husband and wife. The husband is a ghost and the wife is a spirit. And as far as we've seen, the most impressive spirit thus far. She has attendance and is perfectly radiant and, you know, impossibly beautiful to behold. And she meets this ghost who turns out to have been her husband on Earth. And he's like this little diminutive guy who's split up into two. There's like the dwarf holding the chain 
of a like a tragedian, like an actor, I guess, who is super melodramatic and always wounded by everything his wife says, even though his wife says nothing but good things to him. But she is challenging his sin, which is, I guess, his resentment of her, right? I've always conceptualized it as self-pity. And I think later on, Lewis characterizes it as somebody who holds other people hostage to them by taking advantage of their pity for them. They sort of, you know, through their conversation, it becomes clear that, well, first of all, she apologizes to him, which sounds like she maybe didn't need to apologize for too much, but she, you know, apologizes for whatever her sins were. And then, you know, they, as they get to talking, he's basically like, well, I, you know, sacrificed by giving you the last stamp, even though I wanted to send a letter. And he's like held this resentment against her forever. You really can't win. If you're this guy's wife, you just you just can't win. Like she was apparently like so generous to everyone she met. And one time she used a stamp that her husband wanted to use. And so sorry, that was the last straw. Well, it's interesting because it makes it seem as though they maybe knew each other from when they were younger. And like, because she has a very pure heart and very generous heart, she took pity on him, which is something that he used throughout his life to sort of manipulate people. So they also talk about the fact that he would go up into the attic and sulk when he got in trouble until his sisters would come down and be like, oh, stop sulking. It's okay. So basically he he has this pattern of manipulating others yeah. by essentially calling out their goodness. Like these are good people who feel bad for him, but rather than using pity in a healthy way where, you know, it allows him to be moved by their generosity for him, Instead, he uses it as a weapon, and particularly against his wife. And he wa- he wants her to admit, which she never does, but he wants her to admit that she missed him, that she was miserable in heaven without him. Mm-hmm. And that's the line she won't cross, because that's like his manipulation. Well, it's also, I mean, it's a beautiful discussion about the reality of the perfect happiness that you would experience in heaven, even if the reality is such that, you know, how could she be perfectly happy, even though the people that she loved on earth so much weren't in heaven with her? And I, you know, he goes into a discussion of the fact that like, we can't diminish God's ability to give us joy. And at the same time, you can't say that hell gets to hold heaven hostage by saying like, well, if I'm miserable, then you're not allowed to be happy until everybody in hell is happy. Like that's impossible. And so it's sort of pointing to the goodness of God and the happiness that we will experience. I mean, I think this is a paradox of the spiritual life always. Where it's like, of course, you know, Mary is crying in heaven for the sins on earth. And yet at the same time, they are in the beatific vision and what could be better. So where you leave off with these people, the ghost hasn't let his wife help him. And you think that's probably the end of it, which prompts this very challenging issue. Well, how can we be happy in heaven if our loved ones are in hell? But they do leave it open-ended because they say, the narrator's own spiritual guide who's explaining this stuff to him says, she was too big to go after him into hell to get him back because she was too perfect. And hell is this tiny little crack in the soil. The town where you came from is this tiny place. Hell does not have room for her. Where the ghost has gone is a place he knows she can't follow him. They do say only the greatest, only God basically, is capable of making himself small enough to go there, to go down to those depths. And the narrator says, well, will he or did he? And the guide says, well, it's not that simple. You're not seeing time the right way because he did. But only in the fullness of time is that going to be revealed. So it's possible that this one person who we met, this ghost, can be saved and can be reunited with his wife in heaven. But they still leave it ambiguous because they don't want to say, yes, he definitely was saved either. But they still got an ace up the sleeve, so to speak. Never despair of God's grace. Yeah, right. Exactly. I think that's, that's a good point. Even at the end, you know, up to the end, Lewis makes it very clear that he's not trying to illustrate ontological realities about purgatory heaven and hell right he's very much using this as a as a method of exploring sin and you know what sin does to us in our 
disposition to be able to accept God's grace. Right. Because he, he says at one point, time does not work that way. When once you've left the earth, all moments that have been or shall be were or are present in the moment of his descending, meaning descending into hell on Holy Saturday. There is no spirit in prison to whom he did not preach. Mm. We touched on the highlights, but this is definitely one of those books that, I mean, I probably read it at least once a year and keep coming back to it as something that's deeply nourishing to think about my own spiritual life. I don't feel like we have that many aids to our imagination that lead us in a direction to think so deeply about the spiritual life or about the moral life or the nature of love between a mother and her son or a husband and wife. And that's why I'm so grateful for a story like this, because he puts such a unique spin on on what it would be like to visualize this, that it's very refreshing to read. And it helps me because a lot of times when I'm when I'm reading scripture or I'm reading like a theological work, my imagination is not engaged, which is you know my fault. But I think that's a challenge a lot of people have because they don't have something like this that can cast a new light on it mm. and make it engaging and sort of expand your way of thinking about it in a new way. Like I never thought of people in heaven being more solid or physically larger, Yeah, <laughs> which he's not saying is definitely the case, but he's using that to make a point that I hadn't considered before that you become more fully yourself. You become able to endure more. Mm. You become greater in that sense when you die to yourself, because that's what all these spirits have in common. They all died to themselves. The first thing out of most of their mouths is like, I made that mistake too. I was an idiot. I was a liar. I was whatever. Because the ghosts always get indignant. Like, are you saying I was wrong? And the spirit says, of course I was. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, the like naivete is sort of like, well, of course this grouchy, sullen person is not going to take you seriously because it's sort of like Little Miss Sunshine. All is well. <laughs> yeah, right. It's great. <laughs> They're all like, what are you talking about? Like, but they're only able to do that because of that death to self that they yeah. accepted, which I think is very appropriate given that we're in the month of November and we are commemorating the dead. It was interesting when I saw the play production. They relied a lot on this screen in the background and it made it clear. I was like, this is hard to pull off, not in a movie. Depicting heaven is hard, which is why he doesn't really do it. He This is just like provisional border heaven. And even then, he sort of struggles. Like there are a few points where he, he says something is like indescribably beautiful. Well, I'm reading your words. If I don't have you to describe it. I feel like uh, Tolkien would have taken a stab at it, you know? <laughs> 45, 45 pages of description of the trees. I thought Rivendell and Lothlorien turned out fine. I didn't think it was that hard to write. <laughs> In any event, heaven's very hard to depict, which is why it's hard to imagine, too. But I think this book on the whole definitely helps to show what it takes to get there, which is death to self and acceptance of Christ, and also what it looks like when you start to approach it, which hopefully Kara and I will see you, the listener, there in the Valley of the Shadow of Life. But don't wait until then to tell us that you uh, enjoyed this episode. Leave us a review on iTunes, <laughs> tell your friends, and uh, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Kara, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. Bye now, and God love you. <laughs>